Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Hi there. You know, Russell has a problem and he's smart enough to know that it's not about the sex addiction. It's about the chase. It's about the seduction. It is about the pursuit Sometimes people don't go after sex. What they go after is the chase. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I'm here to explain to you what sexual addiction is about, what partner trauma is all about. And tonight I am so thrilled because we're going to be talking about early recovery for couples and, and how that's different than couples that have been working at this a couple of years. Now, I know you may be going, oh, my gosh, you mean I have to work on our relationship for a couple of years? Actually, my experience is that people do want to work on things. They do feel that it enhances the relationship. They are ready to do the tough work. And when they do, then clearly it has lots and lots of benefits. And, you know, marriage is hard. It's hard for people that haven't experienced this kind of trauma, this betrayal trauma, this compulsivity. So i got to hand it to you. If you're listening to this show, you obviously have hope. You know that there are some things you can do to make it better, whether you're a sex addict I promise you, if you can develop empathy and really see it from her point of view and help her to feel better, you know, kind of right the wrongs of the pain that you've caused, it will definitely have dividends. And if you're a partner listening to this show, there is hope. 
if he gets clean and he's doing his recovery tools, he is much more likely to end up being the person that you want him to be. And that is my guarantee. Now, I'm not saying that somebody won't slip or relapse or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm telling you that if somebody is working a good, strong program, wow, there is all sorts of hope for the relationship. And tonight I'm going to be interviewing Jeannie Fatoni, who is an LCSW, and she is a CSAP supervisor, and she's a clinical certified partner specialist. She has developed this trauma model in her work with partners and addicts and is helping couples all over the world um, find hope in recovery. So I can't wait to talk to her about her early recovery couples work and what that looks like and what you can expect and and what kind of tips she has for you. In the meantime, what I believe to be true is that there are certain formulas that work. You know, I have I've worked with people all over the country and sometimes they ask, you know, Carol, when when I discovered that my husband or wife was cheating, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know what to do, I didn't know what to believe, and I really questioned myself. And so I am here to help you as a couple figure out what to do next. You know, interestingly enough, this is a fairly new field for us. I mean, clearly, sexual addiction has been around for a long, long time. And yet, with the Internet making it so accessible, so affordable, and so anonymous, People are dealing with temptations that they've never had in their life. And they're doing it with such intensity and so much frequency that they're producing chemicals in the brain that we've never seen. And so the neuroscience is what we know we have to really focus on if we're going to help people. You may have heard it before, but both the addict, and the partner feels shame. My special quote that I made up is, the addict carries the shame, but it is the partner that carries the pain. And that came from my early work with couples. You know, I would work with an addict, and he'd get better, and he'd go to 12-step meetings, and he'd do his work, And he could begin to breathe again, feeling better about his progress. And as he began to feel better, then I'd invite the wife in or the spouse, because it could have been a male spouse, and they were um, traumatized beyond belief. They experienced all this pain. And that's where I came up with, well, it's the addict that carries the shame, but it's the partner that carries the pain. 
because they were so activated in fear. They were in so much disbelief. They couldn't believe it was happening to them. Their whole world had crumbled. You know, and here the addict is starting to do better, and he's getting some recovery under his belt, and he's beginning to feel good about himself, and yet it's the partner that was having so much trouble. Well, I was having trouble getting the partner better. And that's when I said, I need to pursue training on how to help partners get through this trauma. And I went, well, I actually had, I had Barbara Steffens on my radio show. And she's the president of APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S, an amazing woman who made it her mission to help partners, and she actually wrote a book called My Sexually Addicted Spouse. And she told me about this training program, and I was going through an EMDR training program. That's eye movement desensitization reprocessing, where you help people with the trauma by doing bilateral stimulation. For any of my listeners, they're probably saying to themselves, wow, what is she talking about? But I'm sure there's some of you that have experienced it. Anyway, I said to myself, I am going to be part of that training program. I'm going to learn everything I can once I get done with this training. And I did. Believe it or not, I'm on the board now. I really believe in our organization. I train clinicians with Barbara. Um, I know the partners carry the shame too. And one of the reasons that they carry not only the pain but the shame is because they have three questions that they ask themselves over and over and over and over again. And those three questions are, how could you do this to me? How could you love me? How could you love the kids? And how could you do this to me, not just once, not just twice, but multiple, multiple times, whether it's with affair partners, whether it's with prostitutes, escorts, going to massage parlors, how could you do this to me? I don't get this. I'm a relationship person. How can you love me and cheat on me like this? Well, what we know to be true is that sex addicts compartmentalize. Part of the addiction means that they put their family in one box or their marriage in one box, their work in another, their church in another, and they're acting out their addiction in another. And believe it or not, they get really good at saying, well, I'm a good dad and I'm a good husband. And then they act out and they go, I need this to feel better about me. And then they go to church and they say, I'm a good deacon in my church. And they just keep going back and forth, compartmentalizing everywhere, every place, every way. Now, the second question that a partner asks, is what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I'm not enough? Now, more often than not, the addiction started way before the partnership, but that doesn't matter because when you're in a partnership, you think, what, is that prostitute better looking than me? What? 
is his desire to voyeur other people, places, and things more important than his desire to be in an intimate relationship with me? And so that person starts judging what's wrong with them. And that makes the partner feel very, very bad about him or herself. And the last question that ruminates and races in the brain is, how can I be sure that if I start working with my addict spouse, that he won't do this to me again? Because I can't live through this again. I don't want it. I'm not going to deal with it. So how can I begin to trust so that I can so that I can begin to restore our relationship? What do I do about this? How can I trust him or her? Now, those are three very important questions, and i got to tell you that a CSAT, a certified sexual addictions therapist, who has partner training, like myself, and has been trained by APSATs, or another valuable organization that really puts, puts partner trauma first, is really what you have to do. So go to APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S dot org, and look for somebody in your city, in your state, that provides um, certified clinical or coaching skills. Or go to CSAT, you know, go to, go to ITAP, and there, is, there you will find certified sexual addictions therapists. And look and see if they've been partner trained. You know, they can at least get you the right people. And that, of course, is org, Or you can go to sexhelp.com. Put in your zip code, and there will be specialists for the sex addict. And a lot of those specialists also have been partner trained. But here's what I believe to be true, and it's not meant to be um, prejudiced, but most people don't know how to treat sex addicts and most people don't know how to treat partners. That's why I'm so excited about Jeannie because she has, just like I do, certifications in both partner trauma and sex addiction. As a matter of fact, she is... um, a supervisor for certified sexual addiction therapists. So not only does she have the training, she teaches, just like I do for APSATS. And she is going to be talking about this early recovery couples therapy. You know, Jeannie, uh, since 1998, has helped those affected by traumatic experience for over 20-plus years. Uh, She's out of Santa Rosa, California, Willow Tree Counseling, which is an outpatient treatment program for sex addicts, their partners, and families. She provides treatment through individual group, family, and couples therapy, and she really has made it her mission to help couples through um, both her certified sex addiction therapy training through ITAP and then through being a clinical partner specialist supervisor 
in the Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists. That's APSATS. She also, like myself, is trained in EMDR. Um, so she embraces this trauma model, and she's got a lot of stuff to talk about today in regards to what couples go through when they're in early recovery. So she's going to talk about what that is and what she's created, and I just am real excited for any of our our listeners who are in coupleship so that they can begin to to explore what they need in their own relationship. Jeannie, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you so much, Carol. It's nice to talk with you again. Absolutely. And and you've come up with this early recovery couples therapy, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what early recovery couples therapy is and why and how you created it. Absolutely, sure. Um, it came about actually by accident, by noticing what was going on in our practice. And so we had couples that were doing individual work, the partner working with uh, their own therapist, the addict working with their own therapist. And what we noticed is that sometimes when they were, at the time we did not have anyone in our group that did couples work from a sex addiction and trauma perspective, And um, so we were noticing a lot of chaos that was continuing in the relationship and um, or um, if they were choosing and wanting to try to be together, they weren't achieving that and separation divorce was happening. And so we started just doing things differently. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that I come from the trauma world and I come to sex addiction with that trauma um, crisis intervention kind of work. And so we were tinkering with how we were working with couples and really trying to meet them where they were. And then upon later, we're just reflecting, wow, this is actually very different. What we're doing is very different than what's kind of in the books. Um, And so that's how it came about. Um, I, I teasingly would say, no one's talking about the elephant in the room. And um, so then we kind of nicknamed it elephant therapy for a while. But you really have to talk about the addiction front center um, because its impact on the relationship is, um, gosh, just so massive that if you don't talk about it directly, it's it's not being given its due attention. And that's what we were noticing. So we just started calling it elephant therapy in years past, and we started calling it early recovery couples therapy. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, clearly the addict wants to talk about the behavior, as does the spouse. So it makes sense that you bring it to the forefront so that you can deal with that as you're dealing with, gosh, both the safety and stabilization and the restoration of the relationship. Now, you and I both know that in APSATs, the first thing we want to do is kind of a crisis intervention and help the partner feel stabilized and help him or her grieve the loss of the relationship as well as the loss of what they thought they had before they could even get to restoring themselves or the coupleship. What do you find that the addict is going through during early recovery? The addict is going through the process of really defining and figuring out for him or herself 
what is their addictive process? What is their cycle? What are their sexual triggers? How are they going to manage those triggers? And so they spend a lot of time in their own reflection, um, and sorry, introspection. But when they do that, if the partner is not aware and understanding what the addict is doing, the partners tend to feel isolated, left behind. And, um, and that's, not, that's not the intention. And so having a therapist who's knowledgeable in the addiction management recovery stuff, as well as the trauma piece, then that person can explain and help really translate between those two worlds. And this is the, mm-hmm. another thing is to have a set, which we can also talk more about, is um, having a therapist who can translate between the two worlds. A partner's trauma healing is a very different treatment path than an addiction sobriety recovery treatment path. They look, act, taste, feel differently. And so we really have to work with each part of the coupleship, understanding, and then having um, a sharing experience, uh, which is hard to do when betrayal is in the room as well. Well, 100%. And you and I both know that addicts may have developed this compulsivity because of kind of a habit disorder and intensity and frequency gets worse. And before the addict knows it, it becomes so compulsive that they can't stop. But the other reason an addict may feel uh, feelings of uncontrollability and compulsivity has to do with trauma for him or herself. So, you know, we're dealing with trauma, perhaps, but clearly there are two very different perspectives in terms of treatment and where people are. And I don't know if you got to hear the beginning of the show, but I was talking about the fact that when I first started working with addicts, when we got them the right resources, they were going to meetings, they had a sponsor, they had fellowship, they were doing their readings, they were praying, they were journaling they did a lot better, and yet very clearly the partners stayed in pain because they didn't have all those resources available Mm -hmm. to them, and they were so traumatized, their therapist didn't know how to work with trauma. It's amazing to me, Carol, how our field has been changing and continues to change. You know, when I started this work eight years ago, um, the, the idea of, staying on the opposite sides of the street was a phrase that was commonly used. And that's no longer the case. And I am definitely a proponent of let's be together, let's walk together with full understanding that our paths are different. Um, But there's such change in our field, all the research um, on trauma, on neuroplasticity that's going on. It seems like it's a whole different field in 2017 than it was in 2009. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like in another five and ten years, the, um, the new information we'll have. And the partners certainly did feel left behind, and that was another piece of why I think um, when we started to change things and translate between the trauma world and the addiction world, um, we had couples staying together often people would come in and say, well, how often do your couples stay together? And I'd say, you know, it's a rare thing for them not to stay together. Um, And I think it's because the way we were handling it that we were giving equal power to the partner 
and really making sure that each person in the coupleship had what they needed to the best of our ability. And that, that said, what I can offer now versus what I offered nine, eight, eight years ago is very different because the field has changed and um, I'm continuing to learn. Um, but it is amazing the changes in our field for the partner, for sure, in the trauma perspective. Absolutely. Now, now, what do you believe are some of the challenges for couples in early recovery? Mm-hmm. And this is where it's a little different than traditional, is in early recovery for the coupleship, again, the addiction is front and center and needs to be tended to. And with that, uh, for most couples, not all, but most couples, there's relationship trauma, there's betrayal, there's lying, and um, and that is, I hear over and over from folks, that that is the most destructive piece. It's that rupture in the trust. So we have to talk about the trauma of the betrayal and um, and then the trust. We have to talk about sobriety maintenance. We have to talk about therapeutic disclosure. Therapeutic disclosure is a very important part um, and of, of do I want to stay in this relationship and how do I equal the power if I don't even know the story of what's real? So that's another part that has to be done in the early phases. Um, I have had partners choose not to engage in therapeutic disclosure, and that is their choice and their right, and I support it. Um, I have noticed the difference of folks who have therapeutic disclosure. But that's one of the challenges for sure in the early stages is we have to identify the trauma, the triggers, and create some skills to manage that within the coupleship as well as within the individual. 100%, and I agree with you that um, my couples are staying together too, and in part that's because they do get a formal disclosure, and although that's a very difficult, painful process, it also mm-hmm. alleviates a lot of mistrust, and it also helps, you know, it's not just for the partner, although certainly it keeps all that information from eking out and drabs and, and, and just small portions but it also helps the sex addict get it all out and stop hiding secrets. And when that happens, beautiful things happen happen for the coupleship. I agree, I agree. Um, I always explain that the therapeutic disclosure is really for both. And, and for, the, for the reasons you stated, the addict going through the process of preparing and offering and giving a therapeutic disclosure allows for true accountability, true responsibility taking, and and um, owning their history, owning the mistakes, the decisions, in a way that really sometimes can't be accomplished without a disclosure. And for the partner, of course, learning what is the full truth. How far, how wide does this or does this not go? What have I heard? And, and so that, I always say, if we're going to build a house on a foundation, let's make this a strong foundation. We don't want to have the house of cards that comes tumbling down because some lies weren't really clarified early. So let's build a strong house when we rebuild. Um, but well, the, and, and sure agree with me at yeah. least, it really helps when you've done a good, thorough disclosure and then a polygraph test can be administered to prove to the partner 
that that person was genuine and honest and didn't hold back any of the secrets. Because you and I both know that prior to a disclosure, it's very common for an addict to say, I've hurt my partner enough. I shouldn't have to tell them every single thing. Why would I want to terrorize my partner further? And yet what we also know is the partners are really good at inquiry and they end up asking questions that gets more information to come out, and so it never feels finished, and it never feels trustworthy. You know, that's another example of how things have changed in our field, I think, whereas when I first started doing this work, polygraph was, at least for us, um, not a common thing, and now, mm, i got to say 99.9, because maybe I'm forgetting one, um, these days polygraph is always included, um, there's a lot of discussion about polygraph before the disclosure or polygraph after disclosure, um, but we make sure that we do a thorough preparing and that the partner gets to ask the questions they need and the addict has time to reflect and offer a good answer and then go to polygraph to make sure it's all truthful. Um, you know, that polygraph is another subject, but it's so important for, again, both partners in the relationship for the for the betrayed partner, here's the truth as he knows it. It's not always the full complete truth because it's what do they believe to be true. That's what the polygraph can test. And so we want to know what is his or her full truth. And then for the addict who's offering this, it's this is all I have. I'm telling you everything that I can think of at this time. I am not withholding. And so that's a very powerful thing for both people in the relationship. Um, But therapeutic disclosure is a process. It's a very delicate process. It's a very serious process. And I think it's one of the essential pieces in early recovery work that you absolutely want to do with somebody who's familiar with sex addiction and trauma. So as a couples therapist and an individual therapist, can you Mm -hmm. tell our listening audience about the challenges of the balance of both the individual therapy and the couple's work. I mean, tell us some of the um, challenges in in terms of how to do it, when to do it, how much to do it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, That's such an interesting thing. I think that's a balance that's always being discussed is – well, what what we believe and what, what works for us is that each person has their individual therapist first. And through that process, the addict can get sober and start to stay sober, so sobriety maintenance. And they have to have a full, um, how do I say, toolbox of good coping skills. Um, because before they go into couples therapy or when they go into the couples therapy, it's going to be very difficult at times and a very emotionally upsetting at times. And we want the, the addict to stay sober through the process. So we like them going through their individual work a bit, getting in fellowship, getting in 12-step, getting in groups, and doing some of that work so they have some good coping skills and can tolerate distress, as well as the partner I think going through her or his individual work, helping to stabilize and to learn, um, to have a sense of understanding, to have validation um, initially right out the bat so that they can have stabilization when they go into the couple's therapy. 
then we come into early recovery couples therapy where folks can tolerate some distress and um yes this balance between individual and couples it takes time away from the family and it is certainly a commitment um, but there is a delicate balance between the individual work and the couple's work. And, and you know, the other thing about it, Carol, is group. i got to say, I, I love group for both the partner and the addict. And the partner in group can really achieve um, a fellowship that understands the pain and can be available on that journey and provide validation and support in a way that therapists cannot, and so group is so essential for partner work as well as in group for addict work um, that they have a community that supports as well as reality testing. Is that a good idea? Is that not a good idea? Um, I'm having some troubles. Do you have some time? Can I talk? So having some close group relationships are very important for both the partner and the addict. And, and that's well, a Obviously, in a group setting, you know, it, we just had this a couple of weeks ago where um, a man was going to take a polygraph and he had not gone through the formal disclosure process. And he said, you know, if she doesn't ask the right questions, um, I'm not going to tell her the truth because I'm not going to hurt her any further. And the whole group was like, dude, you've got to be honest. Your program's about rigorous honesty. You'll feel so much better. It's hard to do, but you'll feel better, and it's the right thing to do for her. And, I mean, they just Mm -hmm. really convinced him from a fellowship standpoint that Mm – actually be hurting her worse if he wasn't honest. And it was a beautiful thing. They had lived it. They could share their own experience. And they were much more persuasive than I could have been because I would have been coming from a clinical point of view as opposed to a, hey, this has happened to me, this is my situation, and it's not right if you do it any other way. Absolutely. The group can provide that feedback and and also when you're in a group, you can have someone else who may have already been therapeutic disclosure and say, look, I, I kind of felt that way too, and I held my rigorous honesty and, you know, let me share with you how it really helped and it was the benefit of the coupleship. Now I don't have secrets. Now everything is out and we're working towards the new version of us. So, yeah, Absolutely. So obviously you're a proponent of group and you're a proponent of individual therapy and couples work. Let me ask you. You know, you talk about early recovery couples therapy as being different from traditional couples therapy. So what do you think are some pitfalls um, with traditional couples therapy? It's not like we're putting that model down, but we do know that that does not necessarily work with sex addicts and partners. So what do you see as the pitfalls? Right, and that's, that's yes, thank you. Um, the, some of the pitfalls is, Traditional therapy will usually focus on creating vulnerability, which we know creates greater intimacy. Um, However, if we haven't talked about betrayal and we haven't understood each other's pain and struggles, then being vulnerable is actually detrimental. 
it's detrimental and, and could be, um, you know, I've seen it almost be traumatizing, abusive to the partner. So we're not seeking greater deep intimacy when we're doing early recovery work. Um, we are also in traditional work. It's a, usually a lot of owning one's own part. This is my part. This is your part. How can I own mine? How can I do it differently? Where does it come from? Does it root in my childhood, my young adulthood? In early recovery, we don't go into childhood. We don't go into young adulthood unless it relates to the addiction. First, we have to identify the trauma of the addiction and work with that. Later, we go into what's my part, how is it. Um, That happens in sort of longer-term couples counseling the other part is uh, we're not building that intimacy. We're not, we're not encouraging full vulnerability. Um, and, you know, and this is where, that, again, we're back to disclosure. Um, to encourage people to be vulnerable and trusting and greater intimacy, when a therapeutic disclosure has not occurred, then we're creating and possibly setting up the partner to be re-traumatized. Because what you're building in the in the clinical room, <clears throat> excuse me, is is not accurate if a full if a full disclosure has not occurred. Um, the other part is trust. <clears throat> we go through in early recovery, talking about trust being how do I say, behavior oriented. I want to see the addict go do the things he or she said they would. Show up and try in these ways that they said they would. That's the way we build trust in early recovery. We're watching behavior. And, and that's because words have been lies before. I couldn't, So I can't trust words, but I can trust behaviors more so. It's not a perfect system, but um, in traditional couples therapy, there's a lot of focus on trust and intimacy, and, and that's not exactly where we go in early recovery work. No, I 100% agree with you, and it's like those counselors don't know the formulas that help addicts and and partners begin to trust, which, of, of course, is, like you said, the behavioral conditions that have to be there that show a partner, yes, he is working a program, he is going to his meetings, he is doing his reading, he is praying or meditating, he is allowing me to look at passwords at any point. I mean, a lot of therapists here in the Midwest don't even know that twelve-step groups um, exist. Oh wow! For yeah. You know, one thing I want to add for the listeners is, um, and this is this is, um, I sometimes say, I'm giving you the key to the exam, <laughs> and this would be an example of when you're going to twelve-step, when you're doing your prayers, when you're doing your journaling, when you learn about yourself, and this is for partner or addict. But coming to the other person and saying, this is something I learned about myself. I was doing this reading, and this is what it meant to me, sharing the process of what one learns about themselves. Um, That is something that um, a partner particularly can look and listen for. And this is why an addict can step closer and share. I want to create a safety around that. Yeah, that's yeah, what ahead. I call recovery intimacy, when there's just mm-hmm. sharing the recovery tools. 
you know, that at least helps begin to build that foundation that you were talking about so that partners and addicts alike can see that they're growing and they're learning and they're developing in all sorts of special ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what helps um, partners tend to give kernels of trust or I always say benefit of the doubt a little bit more, a little bit more. Every time um, an addict is coming forward, and I like that term recovery intimacy, sharing their process, it's like putting you know, a coin in the bank and it's the trust bank. We're just a little deposit here, a little deposit here because healing a relationship takes a very long time and trauma healing can take a very long time especially when it regards or it's been caused by lies and betrayal. It's going to take a long time. And so every little bit does count and is helpful. Well, and you know the other thing that really helps, especially, well, at all times, I started to say especially in early recovery, but truly when an addict comes to a partner and says, I had a slip, I looked at a provocative visual image, it might not have been porn, and maybe it was a woman in a bathing suit, But when he can say, I did this, and he offers that information as opposed to the inquiry that discovers it, um, it really helps the partner to say, you know what, he's sharing with me some of his struggles too. And that makes me feel like he's working on honesty. You You have described a perfect example of early recovery couples therapy. Because we would have, in the context of session, created a a safe container. I wouldn't want the addict to say that to a partner as someone's making dinner. You know, it's how do I share this information? When do I share this information? And after I share it, I want to have created what am I going to do about this information? And so that would have been talked about or... um, or created, you know, please come to me and say, I have something important to talk about. Um, I, I looked at this provocative image. I then realized mistake I had made. Um, and then tell what you've done with it. The addict shares what they did with it. I went and I journaled. I prayed. I reached out and I called a fellowship member. This is how I think I'm going to try not to do that again. This is what I'm thinking could be an idea to change my program so I don't head down that path again. So that's a perfect example, Carol, of something we would have talked about in early recovery addiction work because that is going to happen and temptations or urges may happen. Um, Relapses can happen. And so what's the protocol? How is this going to be handled um, and that's another difference than traditional therapy is that some of the, the folks who are wonderful, very strong clinicians don't have the specialization in sex addiction and partner trauma work. You have to know what questions to ask and to create that container because those situations could be on your path. And you want to know about them before you get that to that part of your path. Oh, I absolutely agree now. When do you think traditional couples therapy is appropriate? When the addict and the partner both are knowledgeable of each other's path and recovery and healing practices, when they are generally in a place that they are can give the other person sort of the benefit of the doubt on a regular basis, huh, I don't know about that, 
but I'm going to wait and see. Let's talk about it later tonight. When they're in a place where I always call it a self-inventory, when they can both each say, let me think about that. Let me get back to you and come back later and then share their experience. When they have the coping skills to tolerate some distress and remain sober, um, the other thing that's really important, um, it, you know, the levels of denial that can occur for addicts. And when an addict is much better at catching his or her own um, denial sort of creeping in, or when the partner says, mm, this sounds like a denial activation, uh, you know, let's take a look at that, and the addict can tolerate, you know what, I think you're right, I think I'm minimizing that. Okay, so when they can go to this kind of language and this kind of sharing about the addiction, about sobriety, about the pain of recovery, that's when I would say they could, you know, go into a traditional model. It's also when about, I'm sorry, I have one more thing to add. I think it's also when, when we talk about, you know, that stinky elephant when the stinky elephant has gone to be a quiet cat on the couch, it's uh-huh. part of their life, it's part of the coupleship, but it's not the main piece we're talking about. That's when traditional therapy and traditional couples work is appropriate. Okay, so now I've got to ask you, you know, I know that your work has some metaphors in it, you know. And <laughs> my favorite therapist, Milton Erickson, was a metaphor king. And today in group we were talking about a fence. So I was wondering, you created this metaphor about a fence. And, and so tell the folks, what is that <laughs> metaphor? How does it help couples? Absolutely. I I think in pictures often. And so... Um, back to what I was referring to earlier about people staying on their opposite sides of the street. You know, that was sort of um, what was said 10 years ago. And I said, you know, how about there be a little fence instead? And, um, you know, in my mind, I saw a four-foot white picket fence and addicts on one side of the fence and the partners on the other side of the fence. They each have their own yard They each get to create what they want it to be. They have a full sense of self is really what it is. And they get to have differences. But there is this separation between um, who one person is and where the other person begins. There is a bit of a separation. So I would say, um, and this again, I would see this and talk to my clients about it, is let's make sure that you're not reaching over the fence. Let's make sure you walk up to the fence, express your need or concern, but you're not reaching over and telling the other person what they have to do or they should do. Anyone who works with me knows I don't like the word should because I feel it implies judgment and a right and a wrong. But I want to make sure that each is not reaching over. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your yard. The other part of the fence was what I noticed was Sometimes um, one person in the coupleship would reach over the fence and take care of the yard for the other one. I see you've planted these shade plants in the full sun, so I'm going to build a little screen, and when you're not home, I'm going to come water it (laughs) because I have a hard time seeing this shade plant in the sun. 
But when one does that for the other and sort of rescues them from natural consequences, the plant doesn't do well, then that person on that side of the earth hasn't had the chance to learn, hasn't had the chance to explore, experiment, have natural consequences, and um, you know, will continue to have this cycle where one reaches over the fence and takes care of the other. So really talked about the fence as a separation, and really it's a metaphor for boundaries. My boundaries of myself versus my boundaries with you. And so how can we not reach over the fence, undermine our long-term process by giving ourselves short-term goals of short-term gains? So short-term gains, long-term loss is what I would always say. And so this this fence has really stuck with us, and I still have clients whenever I talk about, oh, yes, Jeannie, in my mind I saw the fence, and so um, it really makes sense to a lot of people. Um, So I use it often and um, even created a little picture for it whenever I talk about it in presentations. (laughs) So, Jeannie, do you have a website uh, and how can people find out more about you, the work you do at Willow Tree, and um, do you have any resources for them? Sure. Um, our website is very easy, www.willowtreesantarosa.com. And we are in Northern California in the city of Santa Rosa. And we have information on our website as well as resources there. Um, our Our website is with the resources tailored to some of the national um, organizations as well as our local community. So if they were looking for meetings in our local area, for example, they would find the link to that on our website. Um, We often offer presentations in our community as well as the other professional organizations that we present for. But we often offer um, a three-hour seminar called Sex Addiction 101. Introduction to Sex um, Addiction. And in that seminar, um, there's a lot of talk about what the experience is and treatment is for the addict and what the experience and treatment is for the betrayed partner and then what's the experience for couples going forward. And um, that's a three-hour class that is offered to the public, our clients, and anyone who'd like to come uh, to learn about sex addiction and have a better understanding of what treatment looks like. Okay, and so one more time, that website is www.willowtreecounseling. Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. Willowtreesantarosa.com. And that's where you can find all of our contact information for the services, the groups, presentations, as well as our email address, and I'd love to hear from anyone. Excellent. Well, I know our listening audience is appreciating hearing about this early recovery uh, couples therapy because, obviously, the goals are different for, for couples that are in early recovery as opposed to mid or late recovery. Can you share what some of those goals are when you're in early recovery couples therapy? When you're doing early recovery work, the goals are um, really to support the struggle of each person and having them understand each of their experiences. I don't want anyone to feel alienated by the other's treatment, and that sometimes does happen with a partner to an addict 
where the addict is well-connected in the community and the partner is not, which is another reason we have worked so hard in our locality to get additional resources for partners in our our local area. Um, The goal is also to begin the process for relationship repair, and again, that usually does cover the part of therapeutic disclosure. We also do a lot of teaching, um, education, communication tools, um, those kinds of things that really help the process, how to, again, to build that strong foundation. And so what are some of those tools and some of those skills that are developed in early recovery couples therapy? Well, you know, it really comes to um, the tools. It's, it's, how do I say, it's really based on the things the therapist does differently in early recovery work than traditional. In early recovery, a therapist is, again, educating um, cross, so educating the addict about the partner, educating the partner about the addict's work, and is also uh, operating as an interpreter. Um, Once upon a time, I had a case where uh, the partner said, I don't understand this bookending. Why is he bookending me? And what does that mean? Is Is he putting me on a shelf? No, he's not putting you on a shelf. It's actually a sign of respect and how important his conversation with you is that he's going to seek fellowship discussion before the conversation with you and again after. It's actually a sign that he's doing good work. If I hadn't been able to translate that, it would have gone very differently in that coupleship. So that's a a tool really using the therapist to translate and interpret um, the other thing is the learning or, of empathy is not always a natural thing. So one of the tools is using the therapist to model the empathy. If an addict can get a sort of a window view into a partner's work and a partner can have a window's view into an addict's work, then the empathy piece can have a, a starting point. And that's one of the tools we offer is to see how does someone else do that. And the therapist is role modeling that. And so by virtue of watching someone else do it, the partner or the addict is learning. Um, we also clarify roles, and that's one of the tools, is boundary work. Again, where do I start, where do I begin, where do you begin, and where do you end is part of the work, and that's what a therapist can role model as well. Um, therapist is also going to be, you know, uh, what, what I call is the therapist can be the cheerleader, but the partner is not required to be the cheerleader for the addict. So how to appreciate change while not being um, the cheerleader or feeling like they have to cheer on the addict. And that's a good use of the therapist. So that, again, and that's back to the boundary work that's being role modeled. So there's a lot of boundary work, a lot of communication, a lot of clarification, a lot of cross-education that's going on between the couple and the partner and the therapist. Well, that absolutely makes sense to me. Now, we've got a lot of people out there that are hearing about early recovery work for the first time, and, you know, Oftentimes, it can be tough enough to find somebody who does good couples work. So, you know, what qualities do you think 
our listeners should look for in a sex addiction therapist as well as in a partner trauma specialist when they're doing couples work? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing is to have a conversation if you're going to be going into couples therapy that you want to have a conversation with the therapist to sort of see what their skills are and what their perspectives are. Do they have sex addiction experience and skills? Do they have trauma experience and skills? And wouldn't it be great if they had both? (laughs) Um, But the trauma piece is also relational trauma. And and so I, I know that I'm narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the field there um, and if you do have that <clears throat> of a clinician available to you that has both of those worlds, then that's the best situation. And if they have one, are they willing to talk um, to someone else who maybe has some more skill in the other area and every so often do a consultation? Um, I firmly believe in consultation, and I do offer it any time that we've got therapists or clients that are going outside of our willow tree group, I'm happy to have a conversation here and there just to give them some feedback and some knowledge. But it's important that the therapist be able to speak to the language of the relationship betrayal and trauma and speak the language of addiction, 12-step, and group therapy. Um, Otherwise, unfortunately, then we've recreated um, a chaotic environment and um, it can be more distressing for the couple. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. So obviously you you just kind of shared what some of the benefits are of a well-trained partner and addict therapist. As we begin to close for tonight, what would be some of your parting words for our listeners who know that they need couples work and they're in the beginning stages of sex addiction and partner trauma? My my suggestion would be to first find an individual therapist that you feel is skilled in this area, that you feel comfortable with, that you can receive feedback from, and have that foundation of individual. And then if you respect and like your clinicians, then the clinicians tend to have folks that they work with often and can refer to, and then you can have a conversation with that couple's therapist, sort of vetting out, do they have these skills and do you think it would be a match? Um, Expressing, I think it's very important when you're trying to find a new couple's therapist, expressing your concerns and your fears to the therapist at the beginning stages so they have an understanding of of what they're walking, um, what the couple is walking in with and what the pain is being very clear about it. Um, This is another reason I want the addict, especially to have strong individual work, so the addict can say, I tend to have denial. I tend to do these things, and I struggle with that at times. And so that's another process of, of talking with the couple's therapist and being very upfront before they get into session and start a working relationship. So have a conversation and be be offering to the clinician, and um, you know the clinician will hear what you have to say and, and offer you information. Yeah, those are all good tips, and I just so appreciate the fact that you have made it your mission to 
teaches early recovery couples therapy. It's a it's another brand new type of therapy that differentiates our couples who are going through sexual addiction from early, middle, and late stages of recovery. So, Jeannie, thank you so much for your expertise and your ability to convey that. Um, I so appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me and and, um, having a nice chat. It's always good to talk with you, Carol, and whenever I can be of help to others, I try to do that. I know. That's very obvious. And so you take care. Keep me posted of other work you're doing, and um, I'll send people your way when they want to know more about this model. Thanks so much, Carol. Take care. All right. Take care, too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So, again, that was Jeannie Batoni, and she is a CSAT supervisor and also an APSAT supervisor. So she is somebody who has made it her mission not only to learn the work but to train others, and that is so important in this field. And as you can tell, she really knows what she's doing. Um, So that was some information about early recovery work. Well, it's time to end the show, and, you know, as I tell you all, there will only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. If you were listening at the beginning of the show and you want more information, I highly recommend that tomorrow you go to YouTube, uh, Healing Sexual Betrayal, APSATS.org, and look up the new uh, video that I posted on how a partner feels in early recovery about him or herself. What are the three prevalent thoughts and how do you work through it? And stay tuned for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. You have a good week and we'll see you next time.